1: hold anything too tightly just wish for it want it let it come from the intention of real truth for you and then let it go
0: for me our soul is like it's unbound it's limitless but we will use words to limit ourselves
2: when people stop believing
0: that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Eric Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today.
1: Samantha Boardman is a psychologist who focuses on optimism, building resilience, and mental well-being. She's also the author of a new book called Everyday Vitality, Turning Stress into Strength. Today, Samantha teaches us the definition of vitality and reassures us that it's actually quite simple to cultivate. At its core, it's about being intentional, about finding everyday things that uplift us. It's not just about seeing the upside of life, it's about putting it into practice. Samantha and I also talk about what happens when we start living with vitality, and she gives us guidance on how to start today. Okay, let's get to my chat with Samantha Boardman
2: are you? I'm
1: I'm pretty good. Between October and December, there's my birthday that happens in October. And then we unwind or wind into the holidays and the end of the year. So everything from October to December, January tends to be very introspective and reflective for me. So you're kind of catching me in the midst of a lot of, yeah, of a lot of um, reprisal, which is kind of like a nice thing. And I was really looking yeah. forward to talking to you today and, and just learning more about your practice and this really fantastic book that you've put together.
2: Thank you. Wait, so did you just have a birthday then? I, I did. I
1: did. My birthday. birthday was, thank you. It was on the 9th of October. Yes.
2: It's so interesting that, you know, I was just talking to Katie Milkman who wrote a wonderful book called How to Change and and really like the science behind it. And she, she's this is her research as well is about the fresh start effect. And is how really, you know, when we, it's anticipating birthdays, obviously we know about New Year's, but, you know, birthdays even might carry more weight for all of us in terms of making the changes that we want to. And just how can we even harness that motivation if there is something that somebody wants to change? And I think she was doing some work for Google at the time and they were saying, well, we've got all these amazing programs for people, but no one's really doing it. So then like, how could they be marketing it to employees especially like around these birthdays and I think especially around like those big like they say it's not even just the decade birthdays sometimes it's like the 29 the 39 it's like the year before the decade too that seems to have a lot of like excitement before and like motivation but then sometimes as you say this kind of reflection period afterwards about like I don't know a state of the union a little bit of like what's going on where am I you know am I going? And I think it's a really interesting period in therapy for all of us to like have these fresh start moments and birthdays force it upon us and, you know, New Year's, but we actually probably could have them all the time. We just need to designate them that like every day is a fresh start.
1: Yeah. I, I really think that that idea of the designation is so important and really that containment of how do I approach something that I do every day but imbue it with a sense of that freshness or in one way or another kind of reappropriate the relationship with the thing, which I think is so interesting in terms of what you're leaning into around turning stress into strength. Because I think when we think about stress at scale in our own lives, there is a banality to the stress. It's like these same things are just constantly creating, you know, a certain, you know, amount of activation. And so, you know, that really leads me into of the first question that i wanted to ask you you know you, you you talk about a patient coming into a weekly session and and saying you know all we do is talk about the bad stuff in my life and you know i'm really curious if you could share a little bit about you know how that moment changed your thinking around you know how you practiced and how you interacted with your patients
2: thank you you know it was such a strange moment i you know i had gone to medical school I had learned to study everything that was wrong in the body. As a psychiatry resident, I'd learned to sort of discern everything that could be wrong in your mind. And I got really good at misery. I you know, was good at making people a little bit less miserable and very symptom-focused. What's your chief complaint? How can we sort of remove some of these issues? How can we make whatever's bothering you less bothersome? And so I was so struck by this patient who... I thought I was making some progress with that, you know, she was, she didn't qualify for a diagnosis of depression, but she was certainly far from thriving. And she was overwhelmed, had a lot of young children, conflicts with her partner. It was just a lot going on in her life. And so when she came into my office for this regularly scheduled appointment was like, you know what, I just dread coming here. Sometimes I feel like all we ever do is talk about what's wrong. You know, I'm done. And I never saw her again and she was done. And of course I got incredibly defensive, you know, in that initial moment about it, like, wait, you know, what is wrong? Clearly there's something even more wrong than I realized, you know, but it was this wake up call for me and that I had been so fixated on what was wrong that I hadn't shifted to figure out like what was right? What were her strengths? What did she enjoy doing? And how could I even help patients find, wellness within their illness or even more broadly, strength within their everyday stress. And it sort of spurned me to realize I, I had to learn more. And I was not being a very good psychiatrist by only just shining this spotlight on symptoms and, and deficits and, and illness. And what could I focus on? These are these were human beings and people with full lives. And I know we would talk about that and talk about the richness and the of their lives, but I think the spotlight was on one thing and even her feeling obligated to vent me, I thought was so, you know, there was something I was clearly doing wrong there when I was asking her to kind of have this venting session in there. And so I, I, when I got this degree in a master's degree in applied positive psychology and we studied resilience, which was a word I had not heard in medical school or psychiatry residency, we I studied optimism, we studied post-traumatic growth, you know, essentially the opposite of a lot of the, the ways I had been trained. And I really think of myself today as a positive psychiatrist, not to in any way sort of sweep under the rug, what's bothering somebody, but also trying to look at actually what makes them feel whole. And I think pathology and pathogenesis is what had been my training and my practice. And I really wanted to go towards salutogenesis, which was really the creation of health. And I feel like it's not a either or, you can do both and.
0: Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers, and now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host.
1: This idea of both and, I really want to turn to this idea of macro and micro stressors. Can you explain and give some examples of of what those are? Because I think this idea of both and really can exist between the kind of categorization of those two things.
2: Well, absolutely. And I was really struck as I started looking into the research around resilience and what it means is that, that people tend to be, for the most part, pretty resilient to those major life events that occur. And there's a lot of research out there that actually resilience is the the norm and not the exception in most people's lives around those sort of more serious, significant events. But what people don't have as much resilience to though is like those, the daily micro stressors, those seemingly minor events, the lost keys, the spilled coffee, the broken cell phone, the, you know, empty gas tank, those irritations with a partner, screaming kids, all those little things that can really add up. And one of the thoughts behind this is why these micro stressors take such a significant toll on our health and both our mental and our physical health is that maybe we don't have the social support around us that people will bring you a casserole when, you know, in the context of a major life event, a death, a divorce, change, people like that support, people actually know what to do even like there's almost like a, rule book of, of showing up for people, but nobody's there for you. You know, when, you know, you had a really long commute or your flight was canceled, you know, there's not that kind of type of that structural support. And actually in our daily lives, sometimes there's very little social connection. We sort of go through the motions. And as we were talking about, there's so much, those micro stressors, it's like sort of the water we often swim in. It's so chronic and it's so familiar that we're almost unaware of them, but it's not to say that That they're not taking a significant toll on our mental and our physical health. And even looking at research of of people who are getting a, um, who have been exposed to the common cold, they're much more likely to come down with symptoms. They're much, much more likely to have worse symptoms if they're reporting a lot of daily stressors at that time. And so I think without this counterweight of actually having. Uplift to manage these hassles and stresses. We're just swimming in that chronic sea of stress. It's
1: interesting to think about the micro stressors as water. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I love
2: that.
1: You know, I think th- the water piece is really interesting because as human beings, we're like 98% water or something like that. So if that is our kind of constant state, then how do we manage with these micro stressors. And I think too this idea of, you know, community or ritual or this idea of how can we help other people as they're moving through micro stressors is also really interesting as well. So so where do we start?
2: Well, I think there's so much pressure sometimes that, you know, to either you've got to pay for something, you've got to buy this, you've got to download that, you've got to like radically upend your life. And A lot of the sort of micro moments that help people feel strong are embedded in our everyday lives, but a lot of the, the sort of time we're not even seeing them or paying attention to them or acting on them. And what I also really wanted to get into in the book was this idea that I think we have is that kind of happiness is all in your head. It's really how you're thinking. And that as long as you're thinking a certain way, then that might change what you do. But you know, from a lot of research, we know that actually the actions you take and the connections you make and how you participate, that's really the wellspring of what I would call little R resilience. And it helps us create a sort of scaffolding around us and taking these micro moments to actually connect with our partners, to you know, have an interaction even with a stranger, to have a little micro moment of meaning with somebody it might be somebody you know it might be somebody you don't but all those small interactions can actually really create a lot of like this buffer zone around us and you know i think protect us from that water that watershed that waterfall of stress that i think we can be swimming in and sometimes even drowning in and i also when we feel like we are sort of adding value in some meaningful way and also when we feel like we're you know we're we're somehow challenged in a good way like we're learning something we're using the skills we have and we're feeling sort of emboldened by that because there's a, a theory that really the, the sort of core of well-being really is, is predicated on three key sort of pillars. It's a sense of connectedness that you are loved and that you love. It's a sense of autonomy, that you have a sense of power, or control, an agency over what's going on in your, you know, in your in your day and in your life. And the third thing is that you have a sense of competence that you feel like you have the skills and the resources to meet the challenges like in front of you. And so where are those in our everyday lives that we can sort of find those little micro moments of connection of autonomy and competence though that I think can help us and actually help others around us as well.
1: I'd love to lean into those kind of three skills you highlighted. And and I'm wondering if this is what you lean into in the book around the fact that the opposite of a micro stressor is an uplift and that you've, and that you found that these three C's as you describe them uh, create that.
2: You know, what would a fly on the wall say, or what would even like, who's somebody I admire right now? Like what would a Michelle Obama say in this situation? And you just have this moment. I mean, it could be one of your role models, somebody maybe it's someone in your family, maybe it's somebody you just admire from afar, but they give us this sense of, ah, like you've got a little bit of breathing space and a pause button. And you're like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't what I think it is. And it helps us reconstrue it. And importantly, even then it helps us take action. Like we don't feel so overwhelmed and like we're swimming in it. I
1: really love the, what would your friend say to you right now? What would someone you admire say to you right now? I think and I wish that was something that children were even taught, even though their psychological development is still, you know, neurologically there's a lo- ways for them to go. But I think learning that from a young age, that kind of like inner voice, almost like in Shakespeare, like the soliloquy, you know, like starting to just talk to yourself, I think is so important. And um, I think is not something that we really spend a lot of time in our culture, like supporting, but that, but that inner speak is really profound. And it definitely has been something I've used over the years, not necessarily understanding kind of the causal link from that to say vitality or, you know, de-stressor. But I think, you know, I think as someone living in a black body and moving through a lot of complex experiences, having to constantly, you know, scan for threat and validate all these different things, you do begin to have that kind of like inner dialogue because sometimes there isn't someone else that you can really go to, to metabolize the stress with. So you have to kind of begin to develop that inwardly.
2: That's, you know, and it's really interesting the way you say that too, is because, you know, how often even when we're upset with ourselves or something that's happened. So like, we'll go into that, like first use pronoun, like I'm such an idiot. I, how did I do what, what's going on? And even there's research that shows that when we can almost third person it and say like, hey, Samantha, what's going on with this? That Just having that breathing space is super, super helpful. And and interestingly, kids like young kids have benefited from this type of these types of interventions and it's helped with their stress and anxiety and even help them concentrate a little bit more if you've asked them to choose like. You know who are some of their like whatever superhero of their choice. Like, what would Dora Explorer do right now? That even you know, or some like cartoon like that. And it's like, ah, oh, well, she would probably keep working on this. You know, so even for them, it has been helpful. So I find that to be, you know, these these really accessible ways for I think you know young people for young kids to just help us lift us out of that self immersion that I think sometimes it's sort of greenlighted by what we're telling people like feel all this pain. And I'm a big, I might be a positive psychiatrist, but I'm actually like a big believer in negative emotion. We've got to use them and learn from them. These are data points. Like this is, these are very important. And there's actually interesting research there that shows us that when we can really pinpoint that, that what we're feeling when we're upset, like what exactly, be as precise as you can with your language here. Like what exactly are you feeling? Are you feeling disheartened? Are you feeling frustrated rather than Bad, good, Because I think we often have this kind of binary sense of like, oh, everything's good or it's bad. I'm happy or I'm sad. But actually being able to hold different emotions together and use them side by side and say, well, you know, I'm having a hard day, but I'm actually able to see this. And even like when we put a very precise word around language that we have, even some, you know, people say that like, Yiddish words or there are some other words in different languages that maybe are even more descriptive than, than English are for just to really pinpoint what you're feeling. Because when you do that, it just helps you see it in a discrete way. It feels less personal, less pervasive, less permanent, whatever's going on. And you also have then the ability to take action. As I'm saying, like action is so important, I think, with, for our mental health.
1: What do you think people get wrong about positive psychology as a self-described positive psychologist?
2: I think that it's like, they think it's all rainbows and unicorns and like, you've got to be happy all the time and smile, grin and bear it, you know, everything's going to be great. And like that kind of toxic positivity that might have spun out of it though. And that, you know, look, we have so much to learn, as I was saying, from, from, really embracing even what's going on with us negatively. And I, I've had many patients who've become so in, avoidant in their lives over, you know, when they've been feeling bad about something or after a relationship that didn't go well or issues at work and just wanting to avoid it and keep moving and keep moving and not like kind of sit with what's going on with them. And that's not rumination. That's just sort of feeling something. But there's also research out there that we know that you, it's when you can learn from these emotions. You can actually say like, hey, what am I going to do differently next time? And you can process them in a way that kind of defangs them. And it doesn't make you sort of feel like you're swimming in it. Because I, I know a lot of people who start feeling guilty if they're not feeling happy or upbeat. I'd had a patient who was grieving for a grandparent who was feeling kind of guilty a month later that she wasn't like quite herself and that she wasn't like her, her friends were sort of like, oh, just smile, you know, like I just, Everything's going to be fine. You know, she loved you. You loved her. You know, isn't it great? Let's celebrate that. And yes, it all was true, but she also was deeply grieving and would have these moments where she would just sort of get hit, you know, and sort of when she wasn't expecting it it would be like driving home or, you know, a moment that she had just laughed and she would sort of then start feeling sad about something, but actually holding those and letting them be a part of her, her life and learning from them and not feeling that toxic pressure to be just, you know smiley and, you know, putting, you know, a sort of positive spin on everything. It can be so much pressure ultimately and exhausting.
1: I agree. And I think also this idea of pressure is interesting to me too, in the sense of there can be a positive component to, to pressure as well. And, you know, oftentimes when people are experiencing a lot of stress, they tend to kind of like cling to the intensity of that, cling to the pressure that the stress provides versus maybe pushing away from the pressure and pushing towards vitality or or tools that, that can help them feel less of that pressure. So what do you suggest for folks who do find themselves just constricting more? when the stress is there and not being able to be like, okay, I'm, 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 I'm feeling super overwhelmed. I I should probably do X, Y, Z, but can't seem to find their way there.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, that's a big part of it because once you sort of do sort of things get narrower and narrower and that's where, I mean, I think in psychiatry and in psychology too, we think of it as so individually based and the idea that happiness is all in your head. I mean, it's, you know, happiness doesn't really come from within it comes from with You know, when you're doing things with others because you're sometimes the last to realize that you've been kind of boxing yourself in and narrowing and retreating um, in some way. And it's when you have at least like built in support mechanisms that, you know, every Friday at 630 at night, like you're going to go and like meet your friend. You're going to go and like see her at 11 o'clock. You're going to and you you completely want to cancel and say, oh, I'm not going to do it tonight, but you're going to feel really bad and she's not going to let you do it. It's like that kind of those types of even we we know from research that when we have activities that we do with somebody else that we feel more obligated you know to do it's it's different than just like oh maybe I'll show up maybe I won't when you are it's sort of that positive pressure to show up for somebody and there is I mean to your point as well about stress like not all stress is bad either you know there is positive stress sometimes I think when we're stressed a little bit stressed out we're at the we're really kind of at our peak performance in many different ways and. So where is that positive stress? And usually it's, you know, when also you're able to kind of turn it off, you're able to sort of maybe be in one domain, you can be sort of stressed out, but then you can go home, you can have fun, you can not, you can sort of shut down that part of your brain. And actually, probably then when you return back to whatever's stressing you, you can, like, you'll, you'll still, you'll actually be revitalized in a way that you weren't. But you know, I, I think for people, though, to have the, sort of those built in mechanisms, because it's usually somebody's going to say to you or even maybe a colleague or somebody like you are clearly like snapping at me. Sometimes you're the last to know that you realize that even that you're not like sleeping well, you're not eating well, you're not taking care of yourself in some way, and you're irritable, that it's often the people closest to you. And I think when you're all on alert for each other and you have this sense of community that like, wait. I'm not gonna let you cancel. Like Erica, you don't want to have drinks with me. To, like, you know, I'm showing up at your house. We're gonna go. You know, and so I think when you have those obligations built into, it, like in a good way. I mean, so it's not pressure like to do more, but actually you have those social connections built into your in, into the structure of your week and even the structure of your day. Like, oh, I'm gonna call this person at that time, and no matter what, you're gonna pick up the phone and do it. And if they don't hear from you, they're gonna call you instead that those are the kinds of, I think, ways that we can, we, we need to think about in the context of our mental health, because it can't just be on us. It can't just be on the individual. It has to be in our connections and our social interactions and in our communities that we're caring about each other, you know?
1: It's so true. And I think this idea of community around the vitality is so important. And it's something else that I, I wanted to dig in on a little bit with you, this idea of, okay, you are paying attention to your own vitality. You are tapping into, you know, your capacity to, you know, uplift yourself and, and, and find that spaciousness, right? How do you help kind of permeate that into your community or into your relationships? You know, cause it's one thing when you're like, I'm, figuring something out or I figured something out about how to take care of myself. And then, you know, you have a conversation with your sister-in-law and it's just like, that's gone out the window for that conversation, you know? So what is that kind of, you know, how does the exchange work? How do we like pass this on? Or is it something that we are just doing for ourselves and it has this like net effect that ends up happening because we're in practice with it?
2: You know Roy Baumeister had said that you know having like personal relationships and that sense of belonging is really having frequent positive interactions with people you that you care deeply about and who also care about you. you know, see so, because you can imagine having frequent interactions with someone who you don't really care about or who who doesn't care about you. but so how do you really have both? and the, the key here is is to be like deliberate and intentional about those interactions like when you're in the presence of your partner, you know, it is giving them your full attention, being fully present, even like the, it's really hard to laugh. Like I love a cat video more than anybody too, but like when you're laughing in the presence of somebody else, there's nothing better, but to laugh together, you need to both be paying attention. Like you have to both be watching the same thing or or having the shared moment where you're laughing at the funny thing the dog did or whatever that is. If you're looking down at your phone, you won't do it. And so I think Somebody had said like the, the greatest challenge to modern relationships is to be more interesting than the other person's cell phone. And I think there's probably some real truth in that is how how do we actually make the most of the time that we spend together? And it's not just that sense of feeling loved, it's providing felt love for the other person and people in your life, which might not be so explicit. It's that invisible support that you're giving. It's those little micro moments of connection. It's filling up the car with gas. You know, knowing that they're gonna need it in the morning. It's buying milk, knowing that you you run out. It's even like kind of maybe sparing them some hassle that they might experience that you, you've been thoughtful. And that experience of felt love, when someone feels it, they're much more likely to take you know, a chance at work. They're much more likely to speak up about something. They're more likely to be curious. They're in discovery mode, not in defense mode. So those everyday interactions and connections that we have, and it might even be if you're buying a coffee somewhere, you know, it's looking up at the the person selling it to you and genuinely saying, thank you. It's having these little sort of micro moments of positivity. If it's holding the door for somebody, you don't have to grow off and join a Peace Corps. But where are those little micro moments that maybe we're, we're missing a lot of them, when we're not present and we're not giving somebody else like the gift of our presence and we're holding back. And I think there are many opportunities in our everyday lives to feel connected, to feel appreciated and to provide a sense of appreciation for, you know, the presence of somebody else, just to even say, Hey, thank you. Apparently one study showed that all too often we keep gratitude to ourselves. Like we think that especially the people we work with or live with, like they already know, or it's too awkward if I even like write something, they'll roll their eyes or I won't be able to find the right words to to articulate what I'm trying to say. And we're completely wrong. It's so appreciated on their end and the uplift you're giving to that person. And they don't care that you've got like the perfect eloquent thank you letter, but it's just the act of doing it. It's gonna make them feel so much better, but it's also gonna give you a boost too. So I think when we can have this like other orientation and that an outer orientation, and less sort of self-immersion, and I think a little bit of you know, self-transcendence in that, that we're gonna actually feel more connected to others, but also more connected ultimately to ourselves.
1: And speaking of ourselves, how are you taking care of yourself in times of both micro and macro stress?
2: You know, a lot of it is is for, for me, like I think my, my tendency is to retreat and to self-immerse and to do a lot of those things that I was saying are not a good idea. And so how I have learned in many ways to actually override them. And I think there was a lot of pressure on, on, on me and on, you know, people of my age too, like, you've got to go and find yourself. Who are you really? You know, and this idea that I've really let go of, of perfection, or that there is some true me beneath all of this. And I was really interested in this idea of like authenticity, like what does it really mean to be authentic? And that actually, like most of us feel more authentic when we're getting closer to the the, the version of ourselves that we, we want to be. And I think even when we're, maybe that goes back to what we were talking about of when you're sort of thinking, what would somebody I admire do, do in this moment? Because sometimes my true self can be pretty monstrous, you know? So like actually kind of trying to like tap into the version of the person whose values are front and center. And I've really tried to embody my values because I really believe, and I I mean, I'm a big fan of your work and this idea of like embodied health, but when you are embodying what you care about and what matters to you in your everyday life and that how you spend your time overlap significantly with what you care about deeply and what you stand for, that you're going to feel much more fortified. I had a lot of patients who were really, you know, super anxious and stressed out. I mean, they still are politically and, you know, but leading up to the election too, and and they, but they weren't connected. And what became true to me in one way to help was that they, they didn't really know what was going on locally or, you know, in their community but they were enraged about what was happening on the national level. And so it was like, okay, who's running, you know, in your community, what can you do there? And I think that sense of embodying what you care about and empowering and getting engaged in what is meaningful to you in an actual way, not just kind of wanting to hurl your phone across the room, like that is going to actually help you feel stronger and, and more fortified in the face of, you know, no matter what, lots of hassles that you can't control. But there are things, though, that you do have some agency over.
1: I think sometimes we can hear the word override and see it as a as a bad thing or not moving in the direction of what's supportive for the body. But sometimes, when you're overriding your desire to retreat or to not confront, there can be a lot of power there.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I think like when it when the override is in connection to your values you know is when so you're not just responding to that like I don't feel like it or I'm not in the mood or I don't really like that's just I'm listening sometimes to my gut but sometimes like our guts can lead us astray but so if you can go back to that sense of okay is this related to what I value most like what are my values telling me like what that th- they're that compass, like that's that true north. So how am I embodying my values in a way that feels meaningful, that I'm going to even look back and be like, oh, I'm so glad that I did that. Because for a lot of us, it's kind of Groundhog Day a lot of the time, you know, like a lot of the stuff that makes us feel strong are the ones that we're the, like le- of, of the actions that we're like the least likely to take because they, in- they require some energy, they require some effort, you know, even if it's something physical, like maybe going to the gym, But, you know, I've one way to sort of even, I think, help override that sometimes is make that a little bit less effortful if it's lower the activation energy. So I have a patient who always like she like puts a jog bra on in the morning, whatever, she's going to go to the gym in the afternoon, like just to make it a little bit easier to do that thing that she wants to do. Another one who works at like a volunteer organization, like she just she does it with a friend because she doesn't want to flake out like that. That's why she's like, no, if she doesn't show up, she's going to just feel awful about it. So how can we kind of build in the overrides that aren't making us feel like we're betraying what we care about, you know, but I think that actually make us feel ultimately more authentic.
1: I have loved this conversation with you. I feel like there are so many unlocks and very clear, clear tools to just start to make some small incremental change. And I find myself really thinking about this idea of micro moments and, really trying to think even as I move into my day, the rest of my day to day, like where can I be engaging more at the micro level? Oftentimes we keep a lot of gratitude to ourselves and not really bring that forward to others. And so in the spirit of that, I want to say thank you so much for your time and for your intelligence and just the effort of bringing bringing a book into the world and and giving us more support for such an incredibly expansive and challenging time that so many of us are going through as we just figure out how to do all of this again.
2: It's all really hard. But, you know, I I think listening to to you and all the amazing work that you're doing, too, is just these little flickers of light that sort of like, oh, yeah. And those moments of delight. And it's truly been a delight speaking to you. And thank you so much for your generosity.
1: Thank Thank you. Thanks for tuning into my conversation today with Samantha Boardman. For more on Samantha, head to her website, positiveprescription.com, and make sure to get a copy of her book, Everyday Vitality. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.